Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live. U.S. Navy shipyards are in crisis. We are thrilled to have you here. Here are some tips for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Please submit questions through the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation. We love to know who's joining us. If there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience as many of us are working from home using home internet. I now invite Brent Sadler to turn on his webcam and take it away. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning and welcome everyone that's joining us today on this panel discussion. Uh, my name is Brent Sadler and I'll be your moderator for today's discussion on U.S. Navy shipyards, an important issue uh, for our U.S. Navy as it grows to a fleet of 355 ships in the near future. I would like to uh, first give a few brief uh, comments about our outstanding panelists that will be giving prepared comments here shortly. First, from the Government Accountability Office is uh, Ms. Diane uh, Maurer. She is the Director of Defense Capabilities, and uh, she started at Government Accountability Office in 1990 at the Detroit office, moving in 1993 to foreign affairs and trade and then becoming the acting director in 2008 to 2009 on natural resources and the environment and then from 2009 to 2017 uh, she worked on defense uh, national security defense and justice and she now has a report out that i would uh, direct your attention to that came out in august on the maintenance delays that are affecting our nuclear aircraft carriers and nuclear submarines Next up, I'd like to introduce Ms. Maya Clark, who's from the Heritage Foundation since 2018. Uh, she initially came to us working for the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom, uh, but she has been at the Center of National Defense writing prolifically on our National Navy Shipyards, the Defense Production Act, and the supply base. And then I'd like to also in introduce our keynote speaker, the Honorable Rob Whitman, a congressman representing the 1st Congressional District of Virginia. He currently serves on the House Armed Services Committee and the Committee of Natural Resources. He is the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Sea Power and is a co-chair of the Congressional Shipbuilding Caucus. His work on those two committees in particular uh, gained him notoriety and recognition by the U.S. Naval uh, Institute with the Vincent T. Hirsch Award for his dedication to the nation's maritime industry. Uh, his previous committee uh, assignments of note was the committee, he was the chairman for four years of the committee, subcommittee on readiness, and he was the chairman of the U.S. Naval Academy Board of Visitors for nine years. And with that, uh, Congressman Whitman, if you join me in coming on screen. Yes. Thank you very much. So I'd like to turn it over to you for your uh, prepared comments. Absolutely. Well, well, Brent, thank you. It's uh, an honor to be joined uh, by, by Maya. I know uh, the, a lot of the great work that, that she's done uh, and also, uh, Thank you to Catherine, and it's great to be joined by Diana, too. It's a great opportunity to talk about the challenges that our shipyards face, and they are many-fold. You know, we can have the greatest ships in the world, from our nuclear aircraft carriers to our submarines to our destroyers, but if we can't keep them on a regular cycle of being deployed, then they're not worth much. And the concern that many of us have is the the constant uh, lack of attention that our shipyards have suffered through, uh, not just in the recent history, but, um, but over the past uh, three decades. It's pretty amazing 
how things have atrophied within that realm of our public shipyards. And our private yards can't do it all. In fact, we, we've seen instances where we have sent some of the ships that would normally go to public yards like our, uh, like our SSNs, our attack submarines, and still the private yards, because they're not used to doing that work, can't, can't catch up. If you look too at work between 2015 and 2019, let's just take that period of time, you see that only about 75% of the work was completed during that time, which means maintenance availabilities went long, deployment availabilities then were shortened, and that meant almost 7,500 lost days of these ships being at sea on deployment. Uh, that creates problems for the United States, especially when it's critically important that we have presence around the world to deter our enemies. Uh, if our ships aren't there, uh, that sends a signal to our to our adversaries about uh, where we are with our seriousness concerning uh, the United States Navy. Uh, there's some things that have to happen in the, in the yards, I believe. We have to increase their capacity. We see many of the yards, very, very old infrastructure. Uh, we want to make sure that we not only repair what's there, but that we increase the capacity, that we modernize it. Uh, I want to make sure, too, that the modernization of the shipyards include new technology, modern workspaces. And the reason we need that is because we have to attract the workforce, not only of today, but of the future. And I can tell you, to attract young folks, even into the skills and trades, you're not going to do that with, with ancient facilities. I use Norfolk Naval Shipyard as an example. I've been there and visited the shop space where our shipyard workers are doing their work. Many of them at, are at the youngest are 75 years old. You go in there, they're antiquated, they're dark, they're just not places where someone goes, wow, this is a great, great place to come to work. Uh, the, the dry docks there too, very old, uh, dilapidated, and at the very edge of being, being uh, functional. So I think we need to be looking at ways that we can modernize. We also need to be looking at the root causes about why we see these delays at the shipyard. I think they are facilities related, but I also think that they are personnel related. If you look at the level of seniority, that is the experience of the workforce there, it's not nearly where it needs to be. And if you have a less experienced workforce, you're gonna have more hiccups in how, how the work gets done. Listen, I, I applaud the Navy for going forward and making sure that we have the shipyard infrastructure optimization plan. I think that's critical. Uh, it devotes $21 billion to modernizing our yards. The heartache that I have about it is it's $21 billion over 20 years. 20 years is too long a period of time with which to achieve this. I think the Navy needs to get much more aggressive about this and shorten that period of time. I don't think that we have 20 years to do these things. We have yards right now uh, that cannot take on the Ford-class carriers. And listen, I know we've got a while before Ford-class need to be refueled, but we need to be modernizing our yards now because uh, you never know when you might need to bring a Ford-class carrier into the yard prior to uh, the, 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 the long-term maintenance elements that are, that are needed. Uh, the, the, as I said earlier, dry dock improvements. The dry docks are in, are in unbelievably bad shape, and we've seen the risk that go along with that. We've seen we've seen accidents that are related to the age of these dry docks. And I've gone visited our, our public shipyards. Uh, those those dry dock areas are right at the very edge of being utilizable for the workforce there, and to be able to get work done at at a predictable rate. Another thing too is, is that the yards are not configured to be maximally efficient. They, they aren't 
designed the right way so that you minimize movement. You know, shipyard workers have to travel long distances. Again, going to the shipyards there, it's, uh, it's unbelievable to me the time that's wasted as shipyard workers have to go, if they have to go get a tool or if they have to go get additional materials, just unbelievable. We, we, could, we could save a lot of time. It'd be much more efficient if we made the shipyard configurations uh, much more efficient. Those, those things absolutely have to happen. As well as I talked about uh, antiquated equipment, you're not going to attract a, the next generation workforce if they have uh, old antiquated workspaces, uh, they have poor conditions they work in, that their tools and supplies and materials are old. Uh, you're just not going to have the kind of shipyard efforts uh, that you need in order to get the work done, to get it done on time and make sure you have both the quantity and quality of work. Those things are all incredibly important things that do not exist today in our public yards. And listen, I've, I've, been, I've been to all of them and they are in each of their own situations have severe deficiencies uh, that need critical attention. And again, I, I applaud the Navy for their shipyard uh, infrastructure optimization plan, but I think it's too long uh, that they have in their execution of this in order to, to make it happen. So I've been working to make sure we get language in the NDAA to force the issue, to make sure that the Navy uh, does the things that are necessary, make sure that they clearly identify the problems that they have to address in modernizing the shipyards. I don't want to see a lot of dollars spent and then find out well, we've actually been devoting dollars to the wrong things or not in ways to make, make shipyards maximally efficient. So I continue to work with that and uh, uh, our, all of our defense committees. I think that uh, these shipyard elements not only are of concern to the Sea Power and Projection Forces subcommittee, but they're, they're of concern to many of the other committees there, whether it's strategic forces because of our uh, nuclear um, ballistic missile submarines or the readiness subcommittee and making sure that we have the availability of these ships to go to sea. All of those subcommittees in some, some way, shape or form have an interest in this. So again, I appreciate the opportunity to share a few thoughts with you, the things that we need to do. This is one of those things that needs to be at the forefront a lot of focus is put on the on building those ships, and that's great. Our, our build yards do a fantastic job, but the public maintenance yards are the places that we really need uh, to focus, as well as uh, the private capacity there. And as we farm some of these uh, these uh, work hours out on things like SSNs, we even see that uh, there are hiccups there. I think we have to really address those issues, as well as some other elements that don't make the headlines for the Navy, like our ready reserve fleet, like our, our tanker security programs, cables, uh, cable ship security programs, all those things don't make the headlines, but they are critically important to the future of the Navy and for our ability to function properly around the world, to counter threats around the world. And the bottom line is this, is our adversaries are watching every move that they make. They know in depth where our weaknesses are and don't think that they won't try to exploit them. And one of the elements of weakness is shipyard capacity, both on the building side and on the maintenance side. And if you look, you saw the study that came out recently that talked about Chinese shipbuilding and ship maintenance capacities. They are much greater than our shipyard building and maintenance capacities. That's worrisome because if we do have an extended conflict, there is going to be damage and attrition. If our yards don't have the ability to get ships back to sea or even to produce additional ships if it's an extended conflict, 
and China does, that gives them an overwhelming superiority in the conflict and it doesn't bode well for us. So those are things that we need to think very, very carefully about. I've had some great conversations with Secretary Esper just last week. I met with OMB Director Vote. We had a, an extensive conversation about the things that need to be in the president's budget to make sure that we are reflecting uh, meeting the needs of our Navy because the way we project power around the world, keep shipping lanes open and keep the world safe is through a strong United States Navy. So again, thanks so much. And I will uh, yield the floor and look forward to, to folks' questions and comments. Thank you very much, uh, Congressman Whitman. I, I'd like to now uh, pivot and uh, give the floor to Miss um, uh, Diane Maurer from uh, Government Accountability Office. If you could please join me on, on screen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brent, and I'd like to thank everyone. I'm, I'm uh, happy to be part of the conversation uh, this morning. What I wanted to do today was talk just briefly about some of the, the highlights of the work that we've been doing at the GAO, looking at uh, different aspects of the Navy's efforts to maintain and sustain its fleet. Over the past several years, we have issued roughly 20 different reports containing about 40 recommendations, all generally designed to help, do, help the Navy do a better job maintain its fleet, as well as address the significant uh, readiness challenges that it, that it is facing right now. One of the key takeaways from our work is that the Navy, unfortunately, has been suffering from consistent, persistent, and pretty significant delays in its ability to maintain its fleet. Over the course of seven years, so from FY14 through FY20, uh, the Navy has endured more than 38,000 days of maintenance delays, and that's across all classes of ships, submarines, carriers, as well as surface fleet. That's a pretty big number. What that means in practice is that, roughly speaking, in any given year, the Navy is losing the equivalent of 15 ships every year due to maintenance delays. And that's a significant problem because that takes uh, those capabilities away from the Navy when it's trying to address a number of pretty substantial national security goals. Um, it's happening within the broader context of the Navy facing some competition from some other great power competitors. Uh, China in particular now has the largest Navy in the world. By no stretch of the imagination do they have the most capable Navy in the world. That still is the United States and that's something we want to see continue. But for that to happen, uh, the Navy will have to focus greater attention and, and greater resources on its ability to uh, to maintain its fleet. Why are they? Why are they these consistent, um, persistent delays? Well, our work has identified about 15 different factors. I'm not going to walk through all of them right now, but I am going to highlight probably three of the most salient ones. Uh, the first has to do with what we call unplanned work. When the Navy is thinking about how it's going to maintain a large combat ship like like an aircraft carrier. It starts that planning process 30 months in advance, 30 months before it even comes into port. It has to plan out what needs to be fixed, what parts are necessary, whether the what dry docks will be needed, the number of personnel, what skills those personnel need to have, and so forth. If there's a break in that chain anywhere along the way, it can create delays. And what happens all too often is that when the ship or the sub comes into port, the maintainers find additional problems, additional things that they hadn't planned for they need to get new parts, they have to get new equipment, and that takes more time and that creates delays and problems down the line. The second issue that we've identified has to do with what we call workforce challenges. And that's a function of both the number of people doing the work as well as the quality of the work that's being performed. When we have done work at all four of the public shipyards, we have heard a consistent theme that they do not have enough workers to do the amount of work that's necessary. Uh, and in a report that we issued just last month, 
we pointed out that in some of the key production shops or thing, you know, the people who are doing the work on welding and ship fitting and, and painting and so forth, shipyards are relying on heavy use of overtime, often to unsustainable levels. In some of those production shops, they were using uh, overtime as high as 45% on an ongoing consistent basis. That's not sustainable and that can create in the long run problems with the ability to perform quality work, which is sort of the other, other half of the workforce issue. The, the Navy has really suffered this ability to recruit and retain and train a skilled workforce. Over the last few years, they've hired 4,000 new people to work across the four public shipyards. So that's, that's a sign of progress. But during that same time, they've only been able to grow on net the number of skilled workers in key production, uh, production professions by 400. So that, that's a key problem and a challenge that the Navy faces. And then the third issue that we've done a lot of work on, it has to do with the, the conditions of the public shipyards themselves. The facilities are old, the equipment is old, the number of dry docks is currently not sufficient. By the Navy's own analysis from a couple of years ago, if you look ahead about 20 years, they will be unable to do one-third of the planned maintenance periods on submarines and aircraft carriers simply because of a lack of dry dock space. That's a significant problem, and that's in addition to the problems that Representative Whitman pointed out about uh, the poor layout of these facilities. One thing to think about if you've never been to one of the shipyards is that these are places that were literally created centuries ago. They are 19th and 20th century with 19th and 20th century infrastructure to repair 21st century weapon systems. That's a major problem. So what should be done to address these problems? Well, broadly speaking, the recommendations that, that we've made point to sort of some broad themes. One is that the Navy, to its credit, is taking these problems seriously, but all too often its efforts are a little too scattershot. We recommend, uh, generally speaking, a more strategic approach that brings together things that are being done sort of across the enterprise. We think it's important for the Navy to become more of a data-driven organization to obtain the information they need to identify root causes. We think they need to be ready for the long haul on this. This is going to take sustained leadership attention and sustained leadership focus over a period of, of many, many years. The Navy, to its credit, has agreed with nearly all of our recommendations, 38 out of 40. We're taking actions to address all 38 of those. They've, they've closed a number of those recommendations. That's encouraging. I think looking into the future, this issue of the Navy's ability to have functioning uh, shipyards to turn around maintenance in a timely way is nested within the broader policy debate about the size of the size and composition of the Navy. That's not something GEO weighs in directly, and I'm not going to do that. But I think the key takeaway there is, regardless of what the future size and composition of the Navy is going to be, the Navy needs to have the support and the maintenance infrastructure to ensure it can maintain that fleet now and in the future. So thank you, and I'll stop there and look forward to uh, everyone's questions. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Maurer. And now I'd like to uh, turn the floor over to and invite uh, Ms. Maya Clark to come online and uh, make a few prepared comments. Maya, over to you. Thank you, Brent. It's an honor to be speaking this morning alongside Congressman Whitman and Ms. Maurer. I want to start by talking about naval power. When we think about naval power, we need to recognize that it's a bigger question than how many ships we have and how modern they are. Uh, there's a lot of clamor right now as the defense community awaits the integrated force structure assessment, and that's incredibly important. But we also need to remember that our nuclear fleet is only as effective as the shipyards that maintain it. 
Navy shipyards might seem like a niche issue, but that's really not the case. They have an outsized impact on our Navy and on our national defense as a whole. And these shipyards are in crisis, as Ms. Maurer and Congresswoman Whitman have already covered. All four shipyards are over 100 years old. They're too small to service the ships that they need to service. And in addition, as Diana said, uh, the shipyards were built for a different era. The most obvious example is Norfolk Navy Shipyard was actually built in 1767 before the United States was a country. So needless to say, they aren't naturally equipped for handling nuclear maintenance. They were not purpose-built, but rather are kind of a hodgepodge of facilities, many of which were constructed in World War II. And between these inefficiencies, decades of underinvestment, and personnel issues, it's no wonder that we have as many uh, maintenance delays as we do. But as my co-panelists have mentioned, the Navy is absolutely not sitting idly by. They fully understand this problem. Their response is the Shipyard Infrastructure Optimization Plan, the SIOP, which was sent to Congress in February 2018. It's an institutionalized program in the Navy. It is overseen by NAVC. It handles all of these issues. And their report describes all these issues in detail. So they, they understand. And they found, as Diana mentioned, in the next, between 2019 and 2040, they predict they'll be unable to complete 68 of the total maintenance availabilities required. And that's in a nuclear fleet of 80 aircraft carriers and submarines. So needless to say, it's a massive issue. Now, the SIOP proposes to remedy problems at the shipyards in three parts. The first is to renovate dry docks. The second is to reconfigure facilities. And the third is to replace the aging capital equipment like cranes, machine tools, et cetera, that are past their usual service life. And it's important to note with the SIOP that it really is more than a renovation plan. It is a systems engineering plan on a massive scale, never seen in military depot maintenance or really in the commercial shipbuilding industry either. Uh, it's very innovative. Their reconfiguration of facilities will be based on digital models that the Navy's currently working on. These will map out all of the workflow and processes in the shipyards so that when the yards are reconfigured, facilities will be built around workflow rather than workflow moving around facilities. And as a result of all these changes, Navy predicts that they'll be able to recover 67 of those 68 maintenance availabilities. This is huge, but there are concerns with the PSYOP. Some are with the plan in itself, uh, such as you know, hazy budget uh, estimates, uh, potential for major delays. If one project is delayed, the entire plan will be delayed, et cetera. But really my greatest concern with the PSYOP, simply that it's a plan to fix the current yards to meet the needs of the current fleet. And as we enter this new era of great power competition, as we shift from this post-Cold War peace and focus on regional conflicts to now competition with China, especially, our four shipyards and 18 dry docks really seem insufficient. And we need to not only be looking at fixing our current yards, also how to recover maintenance capacity that was lost in post-Cold War shipyard closures. Uh, and so with that, I'll turn it back to Brent and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much, Maya. And thank you to all of our, uh, our 
panel speakers this morning. Uh, I've been uh, feverishly watching the chat line, and if I'm looking over, I seem somewhat distracted, and I'm trying to consolidate several questions in this age of COVID and uh, distance and remote uh, panel discussions. With that, I'm going to try. Uh, please, everyone, please stay. Uh, keep your cameras on from the panel. The first question is for you, uh, Congressman uh, Whitman. There's several questions that have come in, uh, all basically addressing different aspects of the PSYOP. But the basic tenor of the questions is, first off, is it enough? And what does Navy need to do to, to ensure continued support from Congress if it's accelerated to 10 years, as in your open comments, you talked about needs to be faster? And, and the other is, is there anything that's going on in Congress right now or being given consideration that might go beyond PSYOP to, as we look at this great power competition and increasing demand, uh, even just the PSYOP, as Ms. Mara mentioned, is not going to get us to the full capacity for today's fleet. It only gets 67 out of 68. So over to you, sir. Well, well Brent, I think there, there are some, some valuable elements of the PSYOP, but the PSYOP is indeed a static document. It talks about what we do based on today's fleet. The things it doesn't consider is what's happening when we go into fleet modernization as the Navy gets into more unmanned vessels, as they look at integrating other new technologies into the fleet. How do you make sure that you have shipyards that are able to meet a future demand? That's why I think uh, the 21 billion that's spread out over 20 years is too long a period of time. I think you need to look more carefully too at elements of capacity. I think that's, that's critically important. Uh, the Navy is looking at using digital modeling to look at workflow and workflow efficiencies. Another thing that they need to do that should be part of this PSYOPs plan, in order to optimize the shipyard, you have to look at op optimizing planning. You know, before you go to the yard, if you're gonna have proper efforts in the yard, you better do good planning. And the Navy has been not good at planning. And I've talked to Secretary Gertz and others about the Navy taking the tons of data that they have on ships. Remember, everything except the Ford class are all mature classes of ships. We know what to expect when a DDG-51 comes to the yard, flight one, flight two. We know what to expect when an SSN comes to the yard. There's no reason why you can't gather that data and use modeling to model exactly what to expect in planning for the next ship to come to the yard. It's, 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 a, it's an easy effort to say, we know the probability that we'll have to replace this valve. And we know how many valves we need to have in reserve in case we need to replace that valve. Instead of saying, well, we're gonna scope the work in a very narrow way and then the ship gets to the yard and as they unzip the ship, they go, gosh, we gotta replace this valve. And they go, well, guess what? We don't have one of those valves. We have to do, do one-off replacement for that valve. So you're waiting and waiting and waiting for somebody to do specialized production. It is the most inefficient way to do it. There are plenty of great models out there. You can even use digital twin technology to look at, at how you model how what to expect in the yard. And I've talked to the Navy, I said, listen, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Look at what the airlines do. Look at what the airlines do to predict maintenance. Look at what they do. Guess what? Their planes stay in the air. They know what to do to make sure that, that they have availability because if their aircraft aren't available, guess what? They lose money. The Navy needs to look at that in the same way. So planning needs to be better. They need to design operations around the yard for planning. They need to keep in mind what do they do for contingencies. They need also to look at the process they use to, to bid and award this work, the MACMO versus MISMO. All of those elements have to go into this. So if you're going to optimize the shipyard, the, the physical facility is one part of the formula. And also 
doing the physical facility upgrades need to be done on a faster pace and they need to, I think as both Diana and Maya have said, they need to look at it in the future because uh, the Navy of today, 10 years from now is gonna be very, very different. The question is, is what do you do for all the new elements of technology that come there? Uh, those are things that Navy has to really get out ahead of. Thank you very much, Congressman Whitman. Uh, I'd like to kind of pivot off of uh, your comments over to you, uh, Ms. Maurer, on this. Much, much has been made about unplanned maintenance. Uh, and I'd also refer back to some of your earlier analysis of the overseas uh, shipyards uh, suffer this, this root cause issue as well. And you go on to say it in your most recent analysis that the unplanned maintenance compounds the, the personnel shortage issue because it results in a 36% underestimation of the work that's gonna be, or the manpower that's gonna be required to do the maintenance. Is more manpower, more people going to solve the majority or all of the problems with our public shipyards and have enough uh, capacity to deal with the future growth in the fleet? That's a great question, Brent. And the simple answer is simply adding additional workers will help, but it will not solve the problem. Uh, because as Representative Whitman and Maya have just pointed out, these are, these are multifaceted problems. Certainly one of the key issues that we've identified in our work is a simple lack of numbers of skilled workers, skilled tradesmen to, to do the work. That is certainly part of the equation, but hiring more workers will help, but you need to be able to retain those workers and you need to be able to train those workers so they can do the highly technical, highly skilled work involved. You know, I think sometimes when people think about repairing ships, they think back to World War II, right? And they think, well, you know, we can, we can build a, a Liberty ship in, in, you know, three days and we can turn an aircraft carrier around in, in over a weekend. That is not, that's not what we're talking about here. These are 21st century systems. They're nuclear powered in many cases. You need a highly skilled workforce. So it's the numbers as well as the quality of training, uh, as well as ensuring that you have the planning that Representative Whitman just talked about, and that the Navy is structuring the workflow with an appropriate level of, of overtime, right? This continued use of high levels of overtime is one way to burn out your workforce and to essentially drive people away. And it's also a signal that you know, the Navy is really struggling to maintain the fleet that it has now, the fleet that it has today, which raises a lot of questions about its ability to maintain the fleet in the future, and uh, as well as its ability, frankly, to maintain a fleet if we get into a, a time of conflict as well. So adding more people helps, but it's not going to solve the problem. Thank you for that. Uh, Maya, I'd like to kind of come to you. I mean, you've done a lot of uh, research and look at the historical record on these shipyards. With, with what's been said so far by Congressman Whitman and Ms. Maurer, have we, I guess the question from the historical record, have we been here before with our shipyards? And what does the history point towards uh, for solutions going forward? Thanks, Frank. Yeah, so looking at the history of Navy shipyards, you know, for a long time we hovered around, you know, eight to 10 shipyards from kind of their founding and the founding of the Navy in 1800, right up until World War II. And when World War II happened, we actually built two more Navy shipyards in Long Beach and in San Francisco. Obviously those were incredibly necessary in a time of conflict, you're not only building many more ships, but you're also repairing those damaged in battle. You had to have this huge burst of activity in Navy shipyards. Then, you know, that conflict ended there were initially closures of shipyards during the Cold War to kind of scale back that then increased capacity. And then the biggest changes came in the 1990s and early 2000s with 
base realignment and closure, the BRAC process, in which uh, committees studied all of the military installations that the U.S. has and determined which ones provided excess capacity and which did not. Well, in the 90s and early 2000s, the Cold War had just ended. Uh, the United States was looking for peace dividends. This led to the decision to close four Navy shipyards. In doing that, we closed two on the West Coast. Now we're entering this period where we're returning to great power competition, and we can't just reopen those shipyards. You know, some like Philadelphia Navy Shipyard, uh, when it closed, became a business park. Long Beach Navy Shipyard is now a center for commercial shipping. And it's always been this balance of figuring out what capacity do we need versus what capacity is excess. And the Navy needs to recognize that the calculus that led to four Navy shipyards has changed, or we're not ready to say it has. We can certainly say that it's looking to change soon. So that leaves the Navy with the question of whether it can increase its organic industrial base, increase the number of public shipyards, or whether it will need to change rules to allow private shipyards to conduct more maintenance. And neither is a simple solution, but we have been here before uh, in times of crisis, the United States making things happen, and it remains to be seen how this will play out going forward. Thank you, Maya. I'd like to just highlight, um, there's been a recommendation uh, from O'Brien Clark, uh, now at Hudson Institute, to get at some of this capacity issue by looking at expanding dry dock capacity into the West Coast. Um, that actually comes with a large sticker price. And so the next question, I'm consolidating about 10 questions that hit on the budget there, uh, Congressman Whitman, uh, over to you. So it comes down to a question of, you know, we have to expand the capacity of the shipyards if we're going to be able to get a return on investment of a larger fleet that's, I think, by consensus, vitally necessary in this new era of great power competition. What is Congress looking at to provide more resources uh, to grow and to sustain this fleet, uh, particularly when it comes to the maintenance side and the shipyard capacities? Well, Brent, there are a number of things that are at issue here. I know as I've had a chance to travel around to places like Guam, where we have a, a limited shipbuilding or excuse me, ship maintenance capacity there. We used to have a dry dock no longer. You look at Pearl Harbor and the things that it's expected to do and the presence that we now expect uh, in the in the repositioning to the Pacific, which you know has said to have happened, but really in many aspects hasn't happened. So the question then becomes is do we have enough capacity in the Indo-Pacific Command to make sure we can get those ships back out on deployment, or especially if there's short-term maintenance availabilities that need to happen. I, listen, I think the answer to that question is, is no. And then the question becomes, how do we regain that capacity? How do we fund that capacity? We all know that any coastal area along the West Coast uh, today, if you were to go back and recapitalize shipyard capacity there, dry docks and other, extraordinarily expensive. So you're not going to go in and condemn land like, like you used to be able to do years ago, you're going to have to come in and, and, and pay the price for that land. And there's not that much of it available that occurs in, in, in industrial centers where you don't have uh, big issues with the not in my backyard syndrome, which uh, comes to play when you're trying to put those elements in. So there are a lot of different factors that go into that. Uh, do we need additional capacity there as far as shipyard and dry docks? Yes. Uh, how, do we, how do we capitalize that? 
uh, that's the more complicated question. I think that we do need to have that. I think the Navy needs to look at that. I think the Navy needs to say, what capacity do we need not only now, but where do we need it 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, especially as the fleet modernizes, as we have more unmanned or lightly manned platforms out there? How do you make sure that you have that capacity? How do you make sure, too, that you have it in places where you don't have to travel all the way across the Pacific back to the West Coast of the United States to have maintenance done? I know one of my former colleagues who represented Guam, Madeline Bordalio, was all the time saying, why don't we put some of that capacity in Guam? And I understand from her standpoint, it was somewhat parochial, but it does beg the question about can we put capacity in certain places uh, to help with that, that need? I think those questions need to be asked because I think that is a long-term process. I think it has a significant price tag to it, but in answer, uh, definitely yes. Uh, how we get there is going to be a longer term track, and there needs to be a recapitalization plan from the Navy, not just with PSYOPs, but what do we do for what future capacity needs are for the Navy. Thank you very much, Congressman. I, I have to say another concern I'm seeing on the, the chat line is that this is all in addition to what Navy is currently being budgeted. So this yes. would have to be a plus up against whatever they're given now and out to the next five years. Yes. Uh, and, and definitely, I think the analysis kind of bears it out that this is additional cost from a, a deficit from a, the post-Cold War peace dividend. Right. Uh, the next question, I kind of like to dig on this a little bit. I've got some interesting comments and questions. And being a Westpac sailor myself for many years, kind of comes near and dear when you talk about Guam in particular. But uh, Diane, I'd also like to get your, your thoughts on this as well. So first, uh, for you to respond to this. What limitations are there currently, and what, I guess, potentiality is there for doing more maintenance overseas and maybe at new shipyards that we may not have traditionally had our ships go to? Australia comes to mind. Again, whenever you look at the annual reports from the Office of Secretary of Defense on China's military power, there's always one slide that shows you the threat rings with all the ballistic missiles and cruise missiles. So if Navy needs to be operating and having safe haven to do maintenance, what's legally or by law preventing or constraining that? And then also, Diana, I guess first to you, you've done some analysis of this, at least with the yards where the ships are getting maintenance done now. Is, is there more there in the overseas uh, bases and shipyards? Thanks for the question, Brent. Yeah, that's, that's certainly I know that's an issue that the Navy is looking at right now. Uh, the report that we issued on uh, Navy's overseas facilities to maintain what were largely surface ships found that uh, those locations in the Pacific, the Middle East, and, and in Europe also suffer from, from delays. On, on average, about 60% of the complete, completed maintenance was completed more than a month late. Um, so that's problematic. Um, some, some, of the, some of the similar underlying factors of unplanned work being an issue as well as some workforce issues uh, being part of the problem. Certainly the, the bigger picture perspective that the Navy you know, could potentially explore other locations is one that's, that's worth examining. It's not something that we have reported on. Um, it certainly is something that definitely needs to be considered regardless of whether the Navy expands where it's going to perform maintenance or not. It needs to be plugged into other planning efforts that are going on. So one of the problems we found in the Navy's efforts to address maintenance problems in general is that different portions of the Navy may work on the problem, but they don't appreciate the big picture. So for example, the Navy is thinking about enhancing the way it's approaching maintenance overseas. It made assumptions, the group that was working on that made assumptions about the domestic capability to support maintenance needs that were not realistic. There needs to be more 
a systematic and strategic look at that. Um, that was one of the recommendations that we made in our report, and it's something that the Navy is taking actions to address right now. Congressman Whitman, uh, any, anything to add on this from your perspective? Yeah, you know, we had a lot of discussion about what opportunities might be available with our partners or allies. Uh, there are also some limitations there in the scope of work that they can do. The concerns many times, too, have been issues of quality of work, uh, timeliness of getting the work out of the yard. I, I, I do think in very specific situations, there are some potential opportunities there. I know if, if you look at uh, Yakuska and some of the things that go on there, they're, they're I think, are some ways that we can do that, especially for short-term maintenance availabilities. I mean, we, we already do some work there at, at Yakuska. The key is, is are, are there ways that we can partner with the Japanese for other, other shipyard capacity? And actually, we look at it when you go there and you see the work that the Japanese do, pretty high-quality work. It's done in a timely manner. So I think you can take those examples and say, well, how can we build upon that? How, how can we look at doing even more of that with partnerships. I know uh, in, in other areas where we've had capacity that is now gone, I think there's an opportunity for us to look at ways to, to maybe rebuild that. Uh, one of the places is the Philippines. There's been kind of a hot and cold running interest between the Philippines and the United States with uh, uh, both uh, not just Navy presence, but potentially some things that could happen there in joint agreements. I think there has to be a little more stability there I would President uh, Duterte and others in order to, to, to get to that point, but certainly things that we ought to in, in investigate. Uh, there are, I think, ways for us to be able to do more uh, in that theater to look at a variety of different uh, capacities, not have all of our capacity uh, in, in one particular area, but to look in ways where we can do very specialized work in particular areas to make sure we can get ships in, get ships out, so they can stay on station, maintain availabilities without having to come all the way back stateside. And we all know that this exacerbates availabilities if you have to come all the way back stateside. So I do think there's a lot of potential there. The key is in the details of those agreements. The key is to, as we talked about here in the United States, is capacity, it's quality of work, and it's the quality and experience of the workforce. I think there are parts of that can that can put together a very successful opportunity for the United States Navy, and those are things that they need to be looking at. Thank you very much. We're, we're coming close to the end of our time. I've got one more question I wanted, I wanted to get at. I'm going to pose this to you, Maya, and of course, any one of the panelists, please chime in on this. This has to do with a question of leadership uh, from, from really the Department of Navy with regards to the, the long-term management uh, of the PSYOP. Who is it? I guess the question is the first thing for the, for the education of the broader audience. Uh, who actually is in charge from Navy for managing PSYOP? And uh, is, is, that, is that leadership in place for the duration? Yes, so overseeing the PSYOP is Naval Sea Systems Command. And the entire project is centrally managed by single program office, PMS 555, that their whole job is the PSYOP. And needless to say, it's certainly a big enough job to justify its own program office. Uh, as for the question of leadership, this really is the struggle with both the PSYOP and with the Navy shipyard as a whole. Whether you attempt to repair the shipyards, uh, fix nuclear maintenance in the Navy through the PSYOP or through some other plan, there really is no plan that's going to be feasible with one leader's tenure. Any plan to Navy shipyards, it's going to take decades. We live in a democracy. 
people are appointed, people come and go with administrations. It's hard to get motivated from a management side to take on a project that's going to cost billions and billions of dollars and which you are not going to see the success of in your tenure. Management for the PSYOP, leadership for the PSYOP does exist because of the long range nature of the project it will really be a challenge to have true leadership pushing behind it without pressure from Congress and uh, pressure from longstanding Navy leaders. Thank you, Maya. We are, we are at the, the end here and I wanted to give uh, Ms. Maher and Representative uh, Congressman Whitman, uh, if you've got any parting thoughts before I close out what has been, I think, a very phenomenal uh, panel discussion and uh, I'll turn it over to, uh, to both of you if you have any final comments. I think this has been, a, been an excellent conversation. It definitely underscores a number of the trade-offs that the Navy and the Defense Department, and really the nation as a whole, is trying to face right now. The Navy is struggling to maintain the fleet that it has. There's a lot of interest in growing that fleet in the future. To make sure that that is able to happen and done in a sustainable way will also require additional attention and focus and sustained leadership on, on the operation, maintenance, and sustainment side of the house. Well, first of all, I want to thank uh, Diana and Meyer and Brent. Uh, Maya and Brent, thank you all so much for the opportunity. Thanks. You all are doing a fantastic job in bringing these issues to light. I think, I think the, the, the takeaway from this is that the Navy has a significant challenge in front of them. Uh, we all talk about the 355-ship Navy. 355-ship Navy means 355 ships that are available for deployment. Uh, and we know that they cycle in and out with the optimized fleet response plan and, and, and other elements of, of operations. But you will not get to having a functional Navy unless you have a highly functioning system of public and private yards. Uh, we talked about thinking uh, uh, creatively with working with allies. One of the other elements, too, is we have to think creatively about how do we work with existing private yards? And then how do we also make sure that as we are making investments, for those yards and shared costs to modernize to build ships, we need to be doing the same thing to help them in shared cost and build capacity for maintenance because it cannot and will not be all a Navy operation to do maintenance. I think you have to think uh, very, very creatively. How do we how do we get the most out of our dollars that we spend and how do we get those dollars operationalized as quickly as possible to have capacity to maintain ships? That means it can't all just be modernizing the existing public yards or building new new public yards. It has to include other elements, partnerships with allies, and making sure that our private yards who have been out of the business of maintaining ships for years, that we get them spun back up so they have the capacity and capability to do that as a partner with the Navy. Thank you very much. And again, sadly, we're at the end of our time. Uh, I appreciate everyone's participation. I apologize to any of you out there that have been monitoring and sending me lots of good comments and questions. I, I assure you I've tried my best to consolidate the many questions that have come in in the comments. Uh, I will just uh, say that uh, this is an important issue for the nation and, and everyone's commentary and insights, I mean everyone out there is very important. And as we close this discussion, I, I would definitely welcome your thoughts. Please use the point of, the point of contact information that you'll see on your screen to reach out to us so that we can continue on such dialogues that are, that are critically important to our nation and specifically our nation's security. And with that, I'd also wanna point you to uh, the Heritage Foundation's website. There's another event that's coming up in early October about national security and space. Uh, that's on October 7th. And with that, again, thank you everyone, uh, especially uh, Congressman Whitman and uh, Ms. Maher for your time. Thank you.